us to start uh, this this message today. It's it's New Year's, right? And, and so everybody's really excited. New Year is a time that, that we can be hopeful and optimistic and just generally excited about what's to come. Um, that's, I guess, the idea of New Year's, but maybe when we live in a time where Dictionary.com's 2018 word of the year is misinformation and 2017's was fake news, uh, we may be a little less optimistic and a little bit more like a Chicago sports fan watching a Bears team going into a playoff game. Even though they have a 12-4 and record, um, all the numbers say they should win. You just know because you're a Chicago sports fan that really you're just waiting for them to disappoint you. Um, if that's where you're looking at New Year's, I'm sorry, um, but I understand. Uh, no, it would be easy for us to have that impression going into New Year's because we live in a time of cynicism, of scandal, of mistrust, of outrage. That, that would be a great way to categorize our society right now. And in fact, I bet that God himself could stand up and give a hopeful New Year's message and people would be mad. Why, why do I think that? Because God did stand up and give a hopeful New Year's message in the Bible and people were really, really mad. Stories in Luke 4. And so if you want to turn in your Bible uh, to Luke 4, we're going to be starting in verse 16. Um, Luke is in the New Testament, third book of the New Testament, and story of Jesus' life. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to bring one, whether digital or hard copy, either one's fine with us. We just think it's a great thing for you to have your Bible with you so that when we study God's Word together, you see it for yourself. It's not just something that we're making up or we don't have like a really cool Bible as pastors and you don't. Um, all the same words are there. So Luke 4 is, is at the beginning of Jesus' life. And, and the passage we're going to look at is the very beginning of sort of his public ministry. Right? We, we heard some stories about baby Jesus, about kid Jesus. He's been off in the wilderness and he's been baptized. He's now coming back and he's going to start ministry as Jesus the rabbi. And so he chooses to do that in his hometown of Nazareth. Before we get into that story, I think there's some things that would be helpful to know about Nazareth. Nazareth is a tiny little rural town in a rural region known as Galilee. It's around the Sea of Galilee. That's how it gets its name. And Nazareth was, was not a fancy place. It wasn't necessarily a well-thought-of place. It was full of highly conservative Jewish people. And it was for centuries like, it wasn't until the 4th century that we've got a record of anything coming out of Nazareth that wasn't highly conservative Judaism. And so this is, this is a, a strongly Jewish town in the midst of the region of Galilee that was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, which means non-Jewish. Okay, so this is a, a strongly religious, conservative community in the middle of a region that is very, very secular and non-Jewish. And so there's an identity that comes with that for the people of Nazareth. Sort of their whole, their whole outlook on life was defined by a, a political religious agenda that was, we want to make Galilee not Galilee of the Gentiles anymore. We want this place to be less Gentile. We want it to be more Jewish. We want this to be a place that honors God. And so they were sort of just totally focused 
on bringing that about. And everything that they did and thought and talked about as a religious community, it was focused on that political agenda of seeing that take place for Judaism to increase in the region. Because they were so outnumbered, they saw themselves as a persecuted religious minority. And because of their history as Jewish people of being scattered all over different empires and relocating, they saw themselves sort of as refugees in their own homeland. Refugees who were a persecuted religious minority. That puts a chip on your shoulder, right? That informs sort of everything that you do and how you see the world around you. And so that's the town that Jesus grew up in, and that's the town that he goes into in Luke 4. So the story starts in verse 16. It says, He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Right, so we've got this scene, Jesus, hometown Jesus, like little Jesus that grew up at Joseph and Mary's house, helped his dad, who's a carpenter slash builder. There's not a ton of trees in the Middle East, so carpenter's a little bit of a stretch. But, but uh, a, a manual laborer who worked with his dad, Joseph, they know this guy. And he's been off, and he's big Jesus now. He's coming home, and he picks up the scroll, and it's from the prophet Isaiah, and he looks at it, and he selects a passage. He reads from it. He stops. Hands it to the attendant. And he sits down, and every eye in the room is fixed on him. Why is everybody staring? They're staring at him because he just read Isaiah 61. And the problem isn't that he read Isaiah 61. The problem is that he read it wrong. What I mean he read it wrong, like, like he changed it. If you go back and you look in your Bible at the first two verses of Isaiah 61, this is what it reads. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't read exactly what Isaiah 61 says. And see, Isaiah 61 would have been a well-known passage to the people of Nazareth. Right? They were not strangers to the passage. They wouldn't be mad that he read it. This is probably one of their favorite passages. The problem is that he hasn't read it the way that they read it. And in the tradition at the time of Jesus, it was okay that he made some edits to it. Like he pulled in a verse from Isaiah 58 and he cut out some things. And that's okay to do when you're reading from the scroll in synagogue, when you're reading from the prophets, not from the law, but the prophets. And so it's okay that Jesus did this, but they really, you're not supposed to do that with Isaiah 61 the way that he did it in Nazareth. Because Isaiah 61 is talking about the day when the Messiah would come. Right? The Messiah is the anointed one, the promised one from God, the one who would reign and restore the kingdom of Israel. He would set things right. He's been promised for hundreds of years. 
And Isaiah 61 describes what life will be like when the Messiah comes. And it talks about a lot of good things that are going to happen for the Jewish people when the Messiah comes. It also talks about a bunch of bad stuff that's going to happen to the Gentiles when the Messiah comes. People in Nazareth, in towns like Nazareth, really liked all the bad stuff that was going to happen to the Gentiles. Right? As a, as a Chicago sports fan, I like it when bad things happen to Green Bay. Like it just, there's, there's joy that happens when Aaron Rodgers looks sad. Um, you get it. Like People you don't like, you want to see them get what's coming to them. Not saying that Aaron Rodgers is deserving of anything. He's a great guy, I'm sure. Uh, but but you, you get in Nazareth, they don't, they don't like the Gentiles. They're surrounded by these people who make their lives miserable, who live in, in complete outright rebellion against God and are stopping them from advancing to where they think the world needs to go. And so Jesus is reading this passage and, and he's leaving out all the bad stuff that's supposed to happen to the Gentiles. Like, here's a picture. This is more Isaiah 6 and, uh, 61, 6 and 7. It says, you will feed on the wealth of nations, right? This is Israel when the Messiah comes. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. That's how the NIV reads. If you look at the, the Aramaic from the first century. Aramaic is the language that people commonly spoke. And so we can see what people wrote in the first century. And it's like a different translation. There were different versions back in the day. And so outside of what we get NIV from the Greek, this is what the Aramaic says of those same verses. You shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles. And in their glory, you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, two for one, the benefits I promise you, I will bring to you. And the Gentiles will be ashamed were boasting in their lot. Okay, this is the tone that Isaiah 61 has. It's not just good things are happening when the Messiah comes. It's that really bad things are going to happen to the Gentiles. And Jesus has left all of this out of his reading. And so everybody is staring at Jesus. What are you going to follow that up with? And he follows it up with some crazy words. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? I take a little bit of issue with that that verse 22 there. It says, all spoke well of him. Actually, that's not what it said. In the Greek, it says, all witnessed him. Right, And it's in the dative case, which makes me sound like a total Bible nerd. And you don't need to know anything about the dative case other than when it's written like it is, and it says all witnessed him, there's no positive or negative connotation with it. It's up to the reader to decide, do I think this is a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm going to read it that way however I see it going. Based on where this story heads, I don't know that this is a positive reading. Right, the, the positive reading is everybody's amazed at these words that are like this is this is Jesus, like this is our guy that we knew. We taught him in Sunday school. Did you hear how he read Hebrew? Like it was so eloquent and beautiful. We're just so proud of him. Isn't that Joseph's son? Like that little guy. That's that's who did that. That would be the really positive reading of this. The way the rest of this story goes, I don't think that's what was said. 
The other way to read this, everybody witnessed this, and they were absolutely dumbfounded at the gracious words that he just spoke. Isn't this Joseph's son? Meaning, isn't he one of ours? Seriously, he just said that? He should know better. We know Isaiah 61 here, and we know that it is not a passage of grace. I think that's what everybody's doing. So they're staring. And Jesus knows that it's uncomfortable, and so he follows up just to make sure that everybody knows what he's saying. He, said, he tells two stories. The first story is a story of a poor Gentile woman who expressed faith and was shown favor by God. The second one is of a noble Gentile man who demonstrated faith and was shown great favor by God. Right? Jesus is intentionally telling these stories, not the stories that you highlight when you're preaching in Nazareth. And he's saying, no, sorry, if, if there was any confusion, I, I did leave that out on purpose. What I'm telling you is that God loves the Gentiles. He loves men, he loves women, he loves people from every ethnic background. He loves everyone who puts their faith in him. Jesus is giving the best news that anyone could have ever hoped to hear, right? It's literally the best news anyone has ever gotten. Jesus is saying that God's promises are fulfilled. The the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that you have been waiting for for centuries, the things that your great-grandparents talked about one day hoping would come to fruition, that's happening right now. God is with you. The king is here. He is starting the kingdom, and everybody is welcome in the kingdom. Right? That should be really good news. It should be really good news that God has fulfilled his promises, that the king is here, the kingdom has started, and regardless of of your ethnic background or your race or your gender or your economic status or your geography or, or your past, none of it matters. Everybody is invited to the party. How do the people take it? They freak out. (laughs) They freak out. This is what happens. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What a welcoming homecoming, right? That's like family right there. Now, let, let's just recap what Jesus has, has just said. He has said, I, I'm the Messiah, right? The Messiah is here. I am God and I am with you. And he said that, that my mission is to proclaim the good news, right? He said, I, I'm to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said that I'm here to advocate for justice, Right? I'm here to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to, to set the oppressed free. And he said that I am here to act in love and compassion. He's going to give sight to the blind. 
So he's just said, I'm God, I'm here, I'm with you, and I'm here to bring good news, and I'm here to advocate for justice, and I'm here to give mercy and grace to people. And the big group of people around him reacts in outrage. I know that's shocking to you. You can't imagine that a public figure would ever say something that people would be outraged by. <laughs> Sorry for the sarcasm. It's a... Uh, it's my love language. I try to keep it to a minimum. But, but no, what's going on here? He's just, he's just said there's really, really good things that are happening, and they're happening now. God is moving, and they, they react in outrage. I think it's really important for us to stop and ask what is happening. Because what's at stake is what was at stake for Nazareth. Right? That day... They literally watched God walk out the door. Because they couldn't hear what God was saying to them. And so we need to make sure that we are people who are able to listen to what God is trying to say to us. Ed Stetzer has written a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And as you can guess, it's about what are Christians supposed to do in this age of outrage that we are living in. I think that's a great name for it, the age of outrage. That's our cultural moment. We are angry about everything. And there are all sorts of ways that we get angry. Um, we, we love to say that the things that we're angry about are righteous anger, but, but there's a pretty good case to be made that there's not very many things that, that are righteous anger. And even when you want to act out righteous anger, you do it in a very different way. You act like God when you're angry like God. And that's full of love and mercy and compassion. Outrage is very, very different from righteous anger, and outrage is the thing that we do really well. Not just non-Christians, Christians as well. Everybody is angry right now. And he talks about all these different factors that have, have sort of culminated in this age of outrage, and he goes through just rapid cultural shifts and, and changes in demographics and innovation of technology and how that's changed, how we interact with each other. Social media and, and news outlets, all media has created echo chambers where we only listen to things that we want to hear, and so we're reinforced with things that we already believe, and then the second we hear something that disagrees, we freak out because we don't know how to process it. Like, there's all sorts of reasons that we are full of outrage, but he says there are three main idols that drive outrage. And I think all three of them are present in Nazareth. And I think all three of them have something to say to us today. The first one that he identifies is politics. And if we look at the story, what happens in Luke 4, remember this is a community that is completely driven by a political ideology. Right? They, they don't have any bearing on American politics. They're, just, they're involved in the politics of their area at their time, and it matters to them. And everything counts. And everything fits into getting us towards that goal or away from it. And so for Jesus to come in and say something that might mess with their political agenda, they can't hear a bit of it. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There, there's a much bigger thing at play here, but... The people of Nazareth, their political agenda, their political platform that they have bought into has made them blind to the bigger mission and message of God. 
this idea, it was not a bad idea that they wanted to make Galilee more Jewish, right? If you reduce that down, they want it to be more holy. They want it to be more like God. They want it to be the place, the kind of world that God desires it to be. That's not a bad thing to want. But their laser focus on how they thought that should be accomplished made them blind to the original mission and purpose of the people of Israel from the start. Which, if you go back to Abraham, the goal from the very beginning was not to make the whole world Jewish. The goal was for the Jewish people to change the whole world. The goal was not to kill everybody else, to drive everybody else out. The goal was to show everybody else who their God was so that those people would be transformed by their God. God wanted to use the people of Israel to reach the people of the world. And because they bought into a political strategy and ideology and perspective based on their own little circumstances, they've decided that they can't listen to what God is directly telling them in person. And I'd say, politics are not bad, right? They may be messy, maybe a lot of things we don't like about, but politics inherently aren't bad. These are the structures that God has allowed to govern the world that we live in, and we should want our world to look more like heaven. We should want it to look more just. But before any political platform, ideology, or strategy always has to be the mission and message of God. The reality is that, that if any political stance or platform gets in the way of proclaiming the good news to everyone, right, to advocating for justice for the least of these, for acting with mercy and compassion to all people, those are the things that Jesus said he's about, right? If a political platform asks us to go against those things, we have to say, I, I don't think I can do that. Maybe we want the same thing, but I don't know if that's exactly the way that Jesus would, and that doesn't matter whether it's red or blue or libertarian or whatever. I don't have to, before anything else, I follow Jesus. And I can't let a political strategy be the thing that is the main voice in my life, because if I am convinced that the most important thing in my life is a political strategy or platform or ideology, I am guaranteed to be disappointed frustrated, and at some point, outraged. It's a whole other layer of messy when you add in what happens when God is against pieces of a platform. Right? If we bought hook, line, and sinker that that is who we are, we're in trouble. See, that's the second idol that fuels outrage. It's identity. And we are in a really messy time where identity and politics have, have been merged together in a really weird way. But identity is a huge issue that faces us. And what I mean by identity, identity is this, this idea that, that my group, my people, my cause, my organization, my platform, my affiliation, my role, my whatever is my source of fulfillment. And it is the most important thing in my life. Right? And, and so whether that is I, I want to be an incredible mom or dad or, or husband or I want to be defined as a success, I, I want to be defined as wealthy, what, whatever I think my thing is, that thing that will make me happy, that thing that I have attached my identity to, if I've allowed that to become the most important thing to me, 
there's a really good chance that I'm going to be disappointed, frustrated, or at some point outraged. Because somebody now disagreeing with something about my cause or idea or group or movement or, or community or whatever, that's now an attack on me. And if I've let that become my main focus, I might miss what God is trying to tell me about who I am in the process. That's what happened in Nazareth. See, the people of Nazareth, they had formed this huge identity around being the people of Nazareth. God's faithful in this small rural town who were surrounded by Gentiles. And they were holding on to the true faith and they were oppressed, and they were mistreated, and, and they had to band together, and that was who they were. And so Jesus is inviting all sorts of people into this picture of a kingdom that doesn't look just like them. He's saying that maybe these things that they've attached their entire identity to are not altogether perfect. And when you tell someone that, they freak out. The reality is if you are placing your hope for fulfillment or joy or satisfaction in anything or anyone besides Jesus, it's not going to be enough. It will not fulfill you. You will never be a good enough mom. You will never have enough success. You will never get enough money. Your, your team will never win enough championships. You will never win enough arguments. None of it will actually make you happy. If your identity is found in anything other than Jesus, you will be disappointed. Again, Jesus is calling the people of Nazareth, really, he's calling them back to their true identity, which is not the people of Nazareth. It's not as Galileans. It's not even as Israelites. What he's calling them to be is children of God. And at our core, as people made in God's image, that's what we are designed to be, children of God, who identify our Father as the greatest thing in the world, and the thing that drives every other role we find ourselves in. And so everything else takes a back seat, it takes a secondary view to this identity that is being a child of God, of being a disciple of Jesus. That is the thing that fuels every bit of my day. That's the thing that fuels my decision making, it's the thing that fuels how I respond to people, my relationships. Every bit of it is built on the identity that I am God's. Everything else is secondary to that. The third driver of outrage are personalities. And for as long as we've had people, we've had influential people, right? There are people that, that others have been attracted to, and we are in love with celebrity. Like, we just can't get enough of it. We, we have actually increased the amount of celebrities that we need and the ways that you can become a celebrity, right? There's always been sort of like entertainment actors, um, People are, who are creative and provide like entertainment in, in screen or play or authors or whatever, but we have way expanded the base from that. We've gone way beyond politicians. We've gone, we've gone beyond community leaders. We now have, we have social media influencers. That term didn't exist five years ago. 
And today, billions of dollars are spent by companies to try and get you to like their things through people that you worship on your newsfeed. It's crazy. But, but they know that we're drawn to personalities, to people who have an image and a, and a cadence and a pattern of communication and a lifestyle that we ourselves want. And so, and so they try and manipulate us through that. We are attracted to personalities. We have athletes. We have, we have talk radio hosts that people spend hours a day listening to that they feel like they're their best friends. We have cable news talking heads who, who tell us every night what exactly we're supposed to think and what the correct way to interpret the facts of the world are. And, and we have no idea all of the ways that we are following personalities and consuming ideas and information from people that are not Jesus. We have celebrity pastors Right? We have pastors that, that, are, that are better than others because of how many people go to their church or how many views their, their video has on Facebook or, or how many likes or retweets or shares or what conferences they're invited to. And we think that that person's got it all figured out and she's amazing. And they're not Jesus. The people of Nazareth had in their minds what a Messiah was supposed to look like, sound like, and act like. It was someone who was very ready to give what was due to the Gentiles. And Jesus comes around, and he doesn't fit the mold of what they're looking for in a Messiah. And they've stopped listening to all of God's word. They've just picked the things that they want to hear, and that's what's formed the personality that they want to follow. And God himself comes along and says, here I am, let's go. And they said, no thanks. That's not what I'm looking for. And so we as people have to be really careful. What are the voices that we want to fill our heads? Who are the people that we want to influence us? What are the opinions that we want to consume from others? And are those coming from Jesus before anyone else? Right? Am I I asking, does, does that personality agree with Jesus? Or am I asking, does Jesus agree with that personality? Right? Which one do I start with? I really, really like what she has to say. I really, really like what he has to say. I totally agree with everything they say. I'm bought in. Now I got to go back. You want me to see if Jesus says something different? What if he does? But I really agreed with that. I liked that. When we've placed our values in the wrong people, the wrong personalities. We are bound to be disappointed, frustrated, and at some point, outraged. We can't miss the invitation that Jesus is giving. Because Jesus is offering something that is very different than any political party can offer. He's offering something very different from what any personality can give us. He's he's offering something completely different than any other identity can give you. Because every other identity is based on what you have done or who you are with or what you have done to earn the position that you have. And Jesus works the complete opposite. That's the message that he spoke to Nazareth that day. He says it's not about what you have done. It's not about who you are. I don't care who your daddy is. That doesn't mean anything to me. What I care about is, do you trust me? 
Do you believe I am who I say I am? Do you believe that my way is the best way? Do you want to see a world in which the least of these are spoken up for and they're given justice? Do you want to see a world in in which we act with mercy and compassion even when the world gives us evil? Do you want to see a world when we offer hope when nobody else knows what to say other than the best rhetorical argument they can give? Do you want to go with me or do you want to keep doing your thing? Our own thing, that's just another way to say sin. That's really the problem. Right? We as people, we have screwed this thing we call life. This, we, we have like royally screwed it up. And there is no politician, no movement, no cause, no, no group outside of Jesus that really has a solution. Author Paul David Tripp, he, he says, the fact is that sin is a bigger disaster than we think it is, and grace is more amazing than we seem to be able to grasp it is. Sin is a bigger disaster than we think it is, and at the same time, grace is more amazing than we think it is. That's the message of Jesus boiled down. You don't realize all the ways that you have set yourself up for disaster. And you have no idea how different the life is that I have to offer you. And I offer it to you freely. Because every other thing that you're going to look at is going to tell you, you need to do this so that you can get this. You need to be this so that you belong here. And what I say, Jesus says, is that that I took every bit of all of that that you could come up with, and I took it on myself so that you could have my goodness for yourself. And you could have a life that the world cannot offer you. It is a life that is free, that is is flourishing, that is is a life that you have dreamed of and you didn't even know you were dreaming for it because of your worldview that was shaped by all sorts of things like growing up in a town like Nazareth. There's a much bigger picture and vision available to you. And I need you to listen to me more than any of it. Right? Listening to Jesus is the thing that he invites us to do, and it's the thing that matters more than anything else. And so I don't, I don't know where you're at today, but maybe, maybe you need to examine some identities that you've taken on. Maybe you need to examine some politics that you've made foundational to who you are and you've not really asked, where does that fit in the kingdom of God? Maybe you need to ask, who are the people that I am following, that I am listening to, that I am worshiping, that are not Jesus? And maybe I need to put some of them down or completely rethink them so that I can pick up a new identity in Jesus. Right, that's what his word promises, that in him we are new creations. We are new people. The old is gone, the new has come. That's the offer that he gives. Trade in the old identity. Trade in the old ways of thinking so that you can have the best way of thinking, the best way of being. It's with me. Let's be people 
who have the courage to say, yeah, Jesus, I'll trust you. I'll go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll stick out like a sore thumb in conversations because I don't have anything mean to say. I can talk about immigration, but I'm not going to talk about immigrants in ways that are negative because they're people created in God's image and that's not how we do things in the kingdom. I'm going to see my neighbors, my brothers and sisters as children of God, people created in your image and regardless of what a personality or my identity or whatever I'm affiliated with says about them, I see that that you have the exact same love for them that you do me. And I want to walk through life with grace and mercy and compassion the way that you did. It'd be a beautiful thing for us to do. Let's be people who do that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a God of good news. A God who, who offers truth and hope to a world that, that doesn't know anything about those things. Thank you for being a God who cares deeply for justice, who wants wrongs to be made right, who wants the least of these to be elevated, to be given dignity. God, thank you for being a God of compassion and mercy, even for us. God, maybe we've convinced ourselves that we're really good and we need to know that we're really not. Maybe we've convinced ourselves that we're really bad and we need you to hear, we need to hear you say that we're still worth your love. God, whatever it is, would you, would you speak to us through your spirit today? Would you give us the courage to trust you? to follow you, to be people who who are able to listen to your voice above every other voice in our world. God, I pray for anybody who's not, not yet made that choice that they want to trust you with everything. Lord, may they, may they have the courage to take that step. May they have the faith. Lord, may we see this world transformed. May this world be transformed through people like us, not because we can do anything on our own, but because you have empowered us with your spirit to be world changers. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.